well, it's hard to believe we're in the fall season. We are exactly, believe it or not, 71 days from the new year. I don't know about you. I say this every year, I feel like, but the year just goes by so quick. We are almost two months away from beginning 2024. And I know when I think of the new year, I think of how a lot of us, we kind of see that first day of the new year as a fresh start. Uh, everybody's looking for a fresh start at the beginning of the year. There's fresh start with our habits, maybe start an exercise habit, end a bad health habit, uh, a fresh start in a job, fresh start in our personal goals, fresh starts in family and careers and things like that. But also there's people, even in the auditorium this morning, that are making spiritual fresh starts. There's people in the auditorium today that maybe are getting back in church for the first time in a while. Who want to maybe pick up a Bible reading habit that they've neglected for a long time. That want to start praying. That want to stop sinning in a certain area of their life. That want to start doing righteousness in a certain area of their life. And when we talk about fresh starts, there really wasn't a more fresh start than what Noah and his family received than when they walked off the ark. That's where verse 18 of Genesis 9 picks up. Think about how fresh that fresh start was. God had identified that the earth was full of violence in chapter number 6. And all the violent people were wiped out by God's judgment in the flood. All the people who were immoral and had created an immoral society were gone, literally. All the people that Noah would have been worried about, who would have been bad influences on his children, were gone. I know there's no billboards or websites in Noah's day, but if he were in our day, there were no billboards he had to look away from. There were no websites he had to make sure not to click. There were no stores that he had to make sure to avoid. The only thing left in this earth that God had now recreated was righteous Noah and his family that I think to their own degree was righteous prior to the flood. And so really our, quest, our question in the text this morning that Genesis 9 addresses is do fresh starts really work? If you're looking for a fresh start spiritually, and you've picked out a day on the calendar and say, I'm going to be a better person today. I'm going to start fresh spiritually on January 1st. Can a fresh start, can a resolution in your own heart to live a better life, does that actually work? That seems to be the answer that our passage will give us today. And I promise you, if you're here this morning, you have a desire to live for God. Or at least maybe to get rid of the things that are not living for God in your life. If you have a desire to have a fresh start, you're going to want to listen to this very unique Bible story that ends the account of Noah's life. As I've said before, uh, my habit here is to preach verse by verse through books of the Bible. And the reason we do that is we get to passages that tell stories and address things that I would never pick on my own. And I think the good thing about that is that you see that all of Scripture is profitable. 
you'll find in this very strange story, I think, profound relevance to your life. At least that's what I hope to communicate. Though it will be conveyed through a very odd, tragic, and honestly grotesque story. So let's pick up where we left off last week, or two weeks ago, in Genesis 9, and we'll begin reading in verse 18. And the sons of Noah that went forth of the ark were Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Ham is the father of Canaan. These are the three sons of Noah, and of them was the whole earth overspread. And Noah began to be an husbandman, and he planted a vineyard, and he drank of the wine and was drunken, and he was uncovered within his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brethren without. And Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both of their shoulders and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father and their faces were backward and they saw not their father's nakedness. And Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done unto him. And he said, Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be unto his brethren. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servants. And God shall enlarge Japheth, and he shall dwell in the tents of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servants. And Noah lived after the flood three hundred and fifty years, and all the days of Noah were nine hundred and fifty years. And he died. The story this morning, I don't know if you pick up on it, but it's very intentionally written as like a sequel to Adam and Eve's fall in the garden. Just like Adam and Eve, Noah is populating a new creation. Just like Adam, his great-great-grandfather, Noah is a gardener, a husbandman, our text calls him. Just like Adam and Eve, their sin involves a fruit. And just like Adam and Eve, there are blessings and curses that flow from this account. And just like Adam and Eve, there is a covering of nakedness. And the story starts out innocently enough. Noah is a man of the soil. He's a a husbandman. He's managing crops. That is... In fact, what his father Adam did, and so it's no surprise to us that Noah, as he uh, leaves the ark, he has to continue to produce food for himself. And so he has his own farming operation, and among his portfolio of crops, undoubtedly, were some grapes. And because he was a harvester of grapes, no doubt it was not uncommon for a man who harvested grapes to make wine, And our text doesn't really address the issue of drinking wine in general, but it does seem to highlight this overindulgence of wine because Noah, in verse number 21, becomes drunk. Now, there's kind of two different views on this. Some people say, well, maybe Noah didn't know that wine could make him drunk because this is, you know, they're starting over from scratch in their creation. I'll just tell you, I tend to think Noah would have known the effects of wine. Because Jesus, when he comments on the days of Noah, he says that in Noah's day, the people were eating, drinking, and making merry. 
So I think Jesus is commenting there that drunkenness was prevalent in the pre-flood society. And so maybe, I don't know why, but Noah, for some reason, after the flood, he's now establishing this new creation. But he chooses to overindulge in wine and becomes so stone-cold drunk that he doesn't even recognize he's naked. Now again, I think there's a lot more biblical data we could cover to assess whether or not a Christian should drink at all. But it is ultimately very clear in this passage and in many other passages, every other passage of the Bible, say what you want about all sorts of drinking, but drunkenness is always and will always be a sin. God desires for Christians not to be controlled by substances, whether it's alcohol or drugs or whatever, but to be governed by the Spirit of God. And here is Noah, the first example of drunkenness. And I think this serves as a warning to all of us. That you cannot control what happens after you cross that line. You cannot control what happens after you cross that line. Whether it's Noah, who is a disgrace to himself and his family. How many people in a drunken state have disgraced themselves? Or personally, I know of someone who committed, uh, you know, killed themselves because they were drunk and all of that, uh, of a good, dear person in uh, our former town. So those things warn us that drunkenness is a problem. But actually, drunkenness isn't really the highlight of the story. It's really just the beginning. Because ultimately, the sin that, that God is ultimately addressing here is not even the sin of Noah, oddly enough. But his sin sets forward a chain reaction of events that leads to his son, Ham, Doing something that's very subtly described in verse number 22. Look down at verse 22. Of course, Noah's uncovered in his tent. He's naked. He's drunk. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father. And he told his two brethren without. Now, the Bible is very intentionally subtle when it describes sin. It tries not to glorify sin, but it tries to be honest about the reality of sin. And so there's a lot of speculation about what happened here. And I think all of these are valid understandings of the text. Some people might say that Ham committed incest with his mother. This idea of seeing your father's nakedness is used in Leviticus 18 to describe incest. Some people say that maybe it's voyeurism, that Ham was getting some sort of pleasure out of seeing the nakedness of his father. And it seems to be that the seeing of his father's nakedness is what's highlighted in verse 22 and the contrast in verse number 23 with his brothers. Or some people might say that there's something more going on between him and his father because in verse number 24, it says that Noah, when he woke from his wine, that he, when he became sober, he knew what his son had done to him. Nonetheless, this is a very disgusting grotesque portrayal of the capability all of us have to sin. And it breaks down into two parts. It breaks down to Ham's gazing at his father. But then, equally as highlighted in the text, is that it says at the end of verse number 22, notice that it says he told his brothers without. Now, I don't think that this is some sort of like, oh no, this happened. What seems to be going on here is that because Noah embarrassed himself by his nakedness and his drunkenness, 
rather than respecting his father and trying to cover up the shame of his father like his brothers did, Ham seems to be spreading the embarrassment of Noah further, acting like a gossip. And then it's directly contrasted by his two brothers' actions because when Ham uh, tells of what happened with his father, notice that his two brothers act the exact opposite. And a really an example of what Ham should have done, verse 23 describes that they took a garment and they're very careful not to see the nakedness of their father. They walk backwards, not looking at him, lay the garment covering his nakedness and leave the tent and they let the situation be and don't spread his embarrassment any further. Now you have to ask the question, what on earth? Is this story trying to teach us? Why of all stories did did God choose to include this really odd description of a very immoral act by Ham and his father? And I think the lesson that this story teaches us breaks down into two parts. I think it answers the question I posed in the introduction. And I want you to listen to what God has to say to us under these two headings. This story teaches us about a serious curse and a promised cure. A serious curse and a promised cure. And what we have to recognize is in the Bible when we have these stories like we have in verses 19 through 24, that the story is only part of the lesson, that the real full story comes in verses 25 through 27 when Noah speaks. And this is actually often how the book of Genesis works. At the very end of the life of a patriarch or an important man in the Old Testament, he will speak words of blessings and cursings. And we're meant to understand almost his whole life prior to that through the lens of these blessings and curses. And what we see in verse 25 is that Noah speaks a very serious curse against the lifestyle of Ham. Look at verse 25. He says, cursed be not Ham, the guy who did the sin, but notice how he says, cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be unto his brethren. Did you notice how often, though he's not probably an actor in the story, how often instead of talking about him, our passage referenced his son, Canaan. Did you notice that? In fact, if you read the verses, his name, Canaan, is referenced five different times. His name shows up, I think, more than his father who actually did the sin in this passage. And so we have to ask this question. Why is God, through Noah, cursing Canaan when it was his father, Ham, who did the bad stuff in the story. Well, put yourself in the shoes of the biblical audience. We've talked about this several times, so I trust it's probably in your memory by now. But we know that the book of Genesis is a book that's not just stories that are just recorded for no reason. These were stories that were written for a specific audience at a specific time. Who was that audience? <clears throat> It was the children of Israel about to enter the land of what? Canaan. Now, I don't think it's a coincidence that Canaan gets brought up in this story multiple times. 
Because what we recognize when we read later on in the books of Moses, Exodus and Deuteronomy and such, is we see that the Canaanites that occupied the land of Canaan, they exhibited a certain culture and a certain lifestyle that is not altogether different than their great-grandfather Ham. So why is God cursing Canaan instead of his father? Well, I think Moses intentionally wrote this story to give us the idea that as the children of Israel are entering into the land of Canaan, that the lifestyle of the people there, the culture of the people there, as well as the culture of the people that they had just left in Egypt, was a lifestyle that was under God's judgment. In fact, in the law, <clears throat> we will see very many times how the sins that God forbids in the law of Moses are condemned because he says you should not live like the Canaanites. And it's not by accident that in Leviticus 18, it says this. After the doings of the land of Egypt, wherein ye dwell, shall ye not do. And after the doings of the land of what? Canaan. Whither I bring you, shall ye not do, neither shall ye walk in their ordinances. And then God dials in specifically what sins he's talking about. And notice in verse number 7, just a few verses later, what he says. And the nakedness of thy father, or the nakedness of thy mother, shalt thou not uncover. Does that sound familiar? She is thy mother, and thou shalt not uncover her nakedness. And so here's what God is saying. He's saying that the actions of Ham are exemplified in future generations of Canaanites. And as these children of Israel are entering the land of Canaan, he's saying very clearly, you're going to see a lot of different lifestyles. And you've seen a lot of different lifestyles in Egypt. But I just want to let you know that just because the culture says it's okay, just because it's normalized in the culture, does not mean that it's okay with me. That I have uttered a curse... I have uttered my judgment on those who will live this life of sin. And as my people, you are not to reflect the morals of Canaan. You are to reflect the morals of your God. In fact, in the Ten Commandments, Scripture also addresses the sins of Ham. By contrast, when it says rather than telling other people and shaming your father, it says in the Ten Commandments to honor your father and your mother. It addresses the sins of Noah when it says that God's people are not supposed to be given over to drunkenness. And so what this passage is teaching us, church family, is that God has already judged the sinful lifestyle of Canaan. And those who are promised to be victorious in battle over Canaan, listen, should also be victorious over the sinful temptations of Canaan. What does our passage teach us? It teaches us that sin has serious and lasting consequences. It has serious and lasting consequences. Sin often has irreversible consequences. And that those who call themselves to be God's people should choose to reject sin and to reflect the image of their creator. I think it's not much different than the Israelites, that it's the tendency of all people in all ages to try and determine what is wrong and right, to calibrate their moral compass by looking around at the world and saying, okay, these people think this is okay, 
And so it must be okay. I mean, if everybody else is doing this and nobody seems to be bothered by this, why on earth should I be bothered about it? And we see that all the time in our culture, don't we? And, and it's different things at different times in history. But these things are okay in culture. And yet this passage reminds us as God's people that our determination for right and wrong should not come from the culture but should come from God and his law. And I think everyone in here has places in their life where your life, like mine, may reflect more the works of darkness than the works of light. Are we in agreement on that? All of us are sinners. I saw a head shaking. No. Maybe I'll try again. Does the Bible say that all of us have sinned? Does the Bible say that even if you have Jesus, there is sin still dwelling in you? We all walk in darkness, and it looks different for all of us. It may not look exactly like the sins of, sins of Ham and Canaan, but friends, sin is wicked no matter what it is. It's so easy for us, isn't it, to criticize the cultural sins, but to tolerate our personal sins. But all of us here, we have words that we speak that may reflect our sin nature more than our new nature. We have tendencies. We have grudges we hold rather than exhibiting the forgiveness of Christ. We have impulses and desires and lusts that take root in our heart that reflect our sin nature. And what our passage teaches us is that God has already spoken his opinion on sin. Sin is serious. Sin does damage. And you and I should avoid sin at all costs. If you want a picture of how serious God is about sin, look no further than the cross of Christ. Sin is so serious that when God's own chosen son chose to bring upon himself the sins of others because he himself had not committed any sin, what we see is that sin is so serious that God himself had to forsake his son on the cross he had to turn his back on his son. And he had to let his son face the judgment that you and I deserved while he was hanging on that cross. You want to know how serious God is about sin? Look no further than the cross of Christ. Because the cross of Christ shows us that it don't matter who you are. Sin brings death. So what do we do? Because you might be here and you might say, well, okay. If sin is bad, then I'm going to make a promise or a resolution tomorrow not to do that sin anymore. I will not be angry. I will not be selfish. I will not be lazy. I will read my Bible. I will pray. I will not um, ignore that person who needs help. And what I like to say is that some of us, what we do is we take a Thomas the Tank Engine approach to sin. I know I'm causing some of you to go way back in your memory. It's back in my day as a kid. Thomas the Tank Engine was a show about a little, little train. Right? Remember, right? What did he say? I think I can. I think I can. I think I can. You know how some of us approach sin? I think I can avoid lust. I think I can stop being angry. I think I can stop gossiping, even though that story is really juicy. I think I can stop lying to cover my tracks. I think I can stop being selfish or bitter or resentful 
I think I can turn this sin off or turn this righteousness on. But here's what we need to recognize. Making a resolution, starting a fresh start, that does not cure sin. Did a fresh start work for Noah? No. You want to know why? Because though the world had been cleansed from all sin, look back at chapter 8 and verse 21. There was one thing that was not fixed by the flood. Chapter 8 verse 21 says that in the very middle of that, it says that man's heart is evil from his youth. You know, so many Christians, what we think will fix society is if we could purge society from all sin. My friend, you could be as righteous as you think you are, but don't think we wouldn't repeat the same mistakes of Noah. If all of society was cleansed and nothing was left but the Christians on this earth, society would still eventually become evil. Why? Because a fresh start doesn't fix an evil heart. You know, what's interesting about this passage is God is uttering a curse on Canaan and he's promising victory for the son of Shem who would eventually become Abraham and the Israelites. So consequently, he's saying, I have cursed the lifestyle of the Canaanites. I'm judging them by allowing you to take their land. And he's giving victory to Israel, promising them that God has already rendered his judgment on the Canaanites and they themselves will be assured victory when they walk in the land. But here's what we know. As Israel enters the land, they get a beautiful fresh start. No Egypt, no no more Canaanites, just Israelites, just them, and the worship of their God. Let me ask some of you Bible scholars. Did a fresh start work for Israel? How long did that fresh start work for? Because what we find is actually near the end of Israel's history in the land is that God renders almost the same judgment on them as he did on Canaan. They themselves are subjected to slavery and captivity in their land. Why? Because they began to live the lifestyle of Canaan. Fresh starts don't fix evil hearts. So you may do your Thomas the Tank Engine approach to living a good life, I want to be very frank and kind to you this morning. It won't work for long. What is the cure for sin? Well, our passage tells us the final cure that sin is given to us. That we can have a final cure for sin. And here's the final cure. It's not a fresh start. No, the final cure for sin is a new heart. Not a fresh start. If you and I want a victory over sin, we don't need a new day or a new year. We don't need a new church. We need a new heart. Look at verse 26. We get just a glimpse of what God is up to when he says, rather than blessing Shem directly, a man, notice who God blesses in verse 26 of our account in chapter 9. It says, and he said, blessed Be the Lord God of Shem. So God is not promising ultimate victory to humans that would come from the line of Shem. No, God is saying that true victory is going to come to us not through a man, but through God himself. And that promise is revealed when Jesus Christ steps on this earth and he himself does not sin. 
but he hangs on a cross and he dies and he faces the judgment for sin, but yet he himself overcomes sin to grant his people a new heart that was promised in Ezekiel 36. We heard about those scriptures quoted in Hebrews. And those who place their faith in Christ, those who believe in his sufficiency and pledge to follow him as their Lord, they receive the promise of 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. It says, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. I love this next phrase. Old things are passed away. Behold, how many things? All of them. If you're in Christ, all things are new. That Christ has given you more than a fresh start. He's given you a new heart that is totally renewed in the image of Jesus. A heart that Ephesians 4.24 says is created in righteousness and in true holiness. And through Christ, if you have faith in him, you are assured victory over sin. That's a whole lot better than a fresh start. And uh, what I want to say to us this morning, those of us who've placed our faith in Christ and we have received that new heart, here's what we must embrace from this passage. That those of us who have a new heart must live like Christ and not like Canaan. Do you realize that if you are a follower of Jesus this morning, you have more resources at your disposal to live righteous than Noah did? I'm going to say that again. You realize you have more potential to live a righteous life if you're a follower of Jesus than Noah did? Noah had an evil heart, chapter 8 admits. And we certainly see his evil heart and his son's evil heart there. But if you're a follower of Jesus, you have a new heart, which means you have more potential and more responsibility to live like Christ than like Canaan. And that's why I think, Christians, this passage is a reminder that the sins of our past life are something to take very seriously. We must leave them behind in the same way Israel left Egypt behind. And we must remember that even if we are under the blood of Christ, sin still comes with serious consequences. <clears throat> over and over and over again, in the New Testament, it tells us that when we receive Christ, we are to forsake the works of darkness and embrace The works of light. One example of this is Ephesians 5. Love Ephesians 5. It says, Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us, and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. But... Fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, that's desiring something that's not yours. Let it not be once named among you 
as becometh saints, neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor jesting, which by the way, I actually kind of recall what's happening in the account here, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. For this ye know, that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man, who is an idolater, hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. God has judged the life of Canaan. Let no man deceive you with vain words. For because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Be ye not therefore partakers with them. For ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Church, I say to you. We are called to love like Christ rather than to resent and seek vengeance. We are called to reflect the purity of Christ rather than to have hearts that desire sin. We are called to give like Christ rather than to hoard our resources and selfishness. And we have hope to live in victory over our sin because Christ not only lived that way himself, But if you are a faithful follower of him, he has given you that very power to live righteously in this present world. Two questions. Have you accepted the new heart that God offers only through faith in Christ? I warn you, without that new heart, not only will you be desperately unable to live righteously, but you one day will face a judgment far more severe than Canaan did. A judgment of eternal hellfire. But God offers in grace, no matter how many times you've turned him down, he offers a new heart by placing your faith in Christ and following him. So question number one, do you have a new heart? Question number two, do you live like you have a new heart in every area? It's convicting to me that Paul says in Ephesians 5, when he names off all those sins, he says, don't let it be named even one time among you. And I don't know about you, I'm often pretty okay with sinning one time, or two, or five. But if we are made in the image of Christ, he says, not once. Do you live like you have a new heart? If you're like me and you don't always do that, accept the fact that Jesus gives you victory over sin. You don't have to sin. What a profound truth. And resolve in your heart through the power of Christ to be done with that sin today. What I want us to do now is spend some time responding to God's word. My wife will come, play the piano. What we believe at Fellowship Baptist is that God's word through his spirit speaks to us. I believe as the scriptures are properly exposed to us, God himself speaks. If God speaks to us, we probably have something we need to say back to him. If you're here this morning and you have not accepted the new heart, there is nothing stopping you. If you cry out in true faith 
and ask Jesus to save you, there's nothing that could stop you from receiving that new heart before you leave this auditorium. That as you call upon Christ and repent of your sins and place your faith in Him, that He will change your life. But no doubt, there are some of us that need to repent and receive God's forgiveness for our sins and pray for His grace to walk in newness of life. So Shelby plays, I want to give you time to pray and respond to God's word this morning.